Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Sarah Mayu. She is an Associate Professor of Law and History at Vanderbilt Law School. Her book, Free Justice, A History of the Public Defender in 20th Century America. It is described as a definitive history of this important yet conflicted institution. The book chronicles debates about indigent criminal defense from the progressive era through the Cold War. Fred Easter. Hello, uh, Professor Mayu. Um, I'm Fred Easter. I'm calling from Prior Lake, Minnesota, which is a third ring suburb, I would say, south and west of downtown Minneapolis. Uh, I have had a checkered career. Um, <laughs> I'm here because Carleton College brought me, uh, or I came to Carleton College to diversify it um, in 1968. That work went well. I uh, have also uh, led an organization in California called MESA, which stands for Mathematics, Engineering, Science, Achievement. So raising money has been what I've done most and done best, um, but I'm having trouble raising any now. <laughs> Alden. I'm Alden Briscoe. I live uh, just south of San Francisco in San Mateo, California, although I grew up in the east in Connecticut. Um, and my wife and I have a firm. We consult with nonprofits and fundraising. Jerry. Jerry Secundi. I live in Pasadena, California. I'm a lawyer that's worked with the federal government, state government, oil companies, NGOs, etc. And in 1968, I was up in Cusco, Peru for the Peace Corps and missed all the chaos. <laughs> David. Uh, David Othmer, I live in Philadelphia, 1968. My wife and I and our one-year-old daughter were living, living in Medellin, Colombia, and listening to the Armed Forces Radio and Television Network a lot. And of course, it was the, the year, you know the year better than we do, but we all lived through it. Yeah. And at one point, we looked at each other and said, what the hell are we doing in Medellin? We ought to be in our own country. We ought to be back, not to say that it was a good time, but it was an exciting time. And, uh, and a few months later, we packed up and moved back to, uh, to the U.S. And we've been here. Uh, my wife and I are since divorced, but, uh, but I've lived here since now I've been in Philadelphia for about 30 years and I've worked in public broadcasting most of my career. Okay, Jeffrey. Oh, hi, I'm Jeff Fox, originally from Chicago, which is where I was in 1968 when we had the police riot. Uh, after uh, working for many years in parts of Latin America and as a sociologist uh, studying and writing about the, uh, culture and politics in Latin America, um, I'm now in southeastern Spain, the extreme southeastern Spain, uh, 
province of Almeria on the on the border of the Mediterranean and writing fiction. All righty, Spencer. Hi, hi everybody, Spencer Jordan. Uh, I'm from Evanston, Illinois. Uh, and in 1968, uh, we were just starting the uh, Black Economic Development uh, Initiatives across the, across the country. And I was working with, uh, if any of you were wearing dashikis, then you'll remember the New Breed Clothiers. Oh, yeah. That was one that we started uh, in New York with Jason Binning and uh, Magnificent Natural Hair Products. So... I mean, you, your do was good and your dress was cool and uh, <laughs> life was good. And we were listening to Earth, Wind and Fire practice in a little uh, apartment <laughs> building, getting their act together. So that's what was going on for me. In my okay, thank you. Peter. Yeah, so uh, I'm Peter. I live, uh, I, I'm an editor and writer. I, I live uh, in northern New Hampshire by Mount Washington, which I think is the coldest mountain, the highest mountain in, in the east. I'm, I'm down in Florida right now, uh, not too far from Mount Dora, which I think is the smallest mountain in the northeast. Uh, and it's much warmer down here right now. In the 60s, I, let me just say I was in the civil rights movement in the 60s, and we, we, we depend, depend very much on the lawyers. They weren't public defenders exactly, but in a way they were because they got us out of jail for free. So that was what I was doing in the 60s. Uh, John Woodford, I'm here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I worked for the university writing and editing for a bunch of years. In 68, I was in Chicago where uh, um, I think I had just switched from working for Ebony Magazine over to Muhammad Speaks newspaper. And I was out and about during the police riot. And I remember going to John Conyers' uh, hotel room with a bunch of guys like Jim Brown and Ironhead Hayward and other kind of athletes who had a, as Spence was saying, the black economic uh, development. There, was a, there were guys there who were all involved in economic development plans. How I happened to get over there, I can't quite remember, but um, that was quite an exciting time driving around with my Black Panther cousin, Lynn French, uh, looking at the uh, debris. Uh, Nick Bancroft outside of Boston, um, member of the same class as most of these guys, after 63, came back to this country. I went to the Peace Corps in uh, 66 in India, came back in 68 to a totally changed country and totally changed Harvard Square with 50-gallon uh, drums burning and gates up and um, motorcycles with big chains and all that kind of stuff. Um, Went into uh, manufacturing, ended up with trusts, investments, trusts and investments in Boston. And uh, I have two cousins who are public defenders, um, were public defenders, uh, one in Boston and one in Houston. The one in Boston um, represented uh, uh, Richard Reed, the shoe bomber. And there's a story there. And he also was extremely outspoken about uh, 
uh, Joker Chanayev. George Jones, I'm in Ann Arbor. I am. Yes, I'm. I'm, I'm back. Huh. My time between Ann Arbor, my current home in Atlanta, my former home, and the home of my daughter, which is one of the reasons why I spend as, as much time as I do there. I am a retired, but not forgotten molecular biologist slash biochemist. And in 1968, I was a graduate student at Berkeley, was involved in forming a black graduate student organization at the university at that time. And we did sit in at Sproul Hall, but fortunately none of us were arrested. <laughs> I'm uh, Douglas Shapiro. Um, I'm a retired physician and behavioral ecologist. I grew up in Houston, and as uh, some of my uh, friends and I uh, like to say, even though I haven't lived in, in Texas since uh, I went away to college, but uh, as they say, once a Texan, always a Texan, which means I have a very optimistic view uh, about life, uh, although I, I think of myself as being a realist as well. And, uh, but I do kind of think that with hard work and, uh, and goodwill, uh, almost anything is possible. Uh, George, George Allen. Uh, I'm a lawyer. Uh, I live in Los Angeles. All right, thank you. Mason. Uh, my name is Mason Morfitt. I live in Maine most of the time, although I'm hiding out currently in balmy, Florida. Uh, in 1968, I was working at Ohio University in uh, Athens, Ohio, which is the Appalachian part of Ohio. And I remember uh, when I was working as assistant to the president. And one night it looked like we had a, a race riot on our hands. And we heard uh, that there were about 30 black kids uh, cornered in a local diner surrounded by a bunch of white kids and there were knives on both sides. And the president said to me, go out and stop that. And uh, <laughs> I can't remember what I said, but uh, nobody got cut and uh, nobody needed a, a public defender. So we got away lucky then. <laughs> Marcy. I'm, I'm in New York City. And in 1968, I was commuting back and forth to Cambridge, Mass. on People Express, the great airline that cost $39 a trip. <laughs> um, and I was working as an editor for a long defunct magazine. And um, because I was commuting to see a boyfriend who was in Mass Mental because he'd had... Um, uh, he, a bipolar break. Um, I didn't have time to be active myself, but he had been very active in core and, um, and his friends were a godsend when, as was man, mass mental back in those days, when there were mental health problems, which of course we're back in today. All right. And Sarah, thank you for joining us. Yes, thanks for having me. So I am Sarah Mayu, and I uh, wasn't alive yet in 1968, but um, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and um, went to Princeton University undergrad, and then went out to Stanford for what turned into a very long, circuitous time in both law school and then a history PhD program. And so that's how I ended up as a legal historian. And I teach 
Uh, so now I'm in Nashville, Tennessee, and I teach in the law school at Vanderbilt. Yeah, so the book is called Free Justice, A History of the Public Defender in 20th Century America. And the title, <coughs> Free Justice, is kind of a play on two themes. So obvious meaning at first glance is, of course, public defenders are lawyers that you don't have to pay for. So they're free in that sense. But um, the nice thing about the English language, at least, is that free also has this connotation of democratic. And what I found in my research is that the legal profession, particularly during the Cold War, really promoted the rights of criminal defendants and the public defender and the right to counsel as components of what justice required in a free, democratic, open society in contrast to the show trials that were the kind of emblem of communism in the public mind. So the title is intended, hopefully, if you read the book, to kind of play on both of those themes. Um, but the origin of the book, so um, in law school, I kind of got the standard narrative of this history, which is that in 1963, the Warren court decides the case Gideon versus Wainwright, which is really celebrated still um, as this kind of hallmark moment um, along with other Warren court decisions, exemplifying the Supreme Court's regard for the rights of the individual and for the rights of the accused. And Gideon holds that the Sixth Amendment right to counsel in the Constitution, which previously applied only to the federal government, the court holds in Gideon that that also has to apply to the state courts as well. And so if you are tried, whether in state or federal court, if you're tried for a crime and you cannot afford your own legal counsel or you don't have, you know, the ACLU or whoever jumping in to, to represent you, then the state has to appoint counsel and provide that on your behalf to ensure that you get a free a fair trial and that your rights are respected and that the prosecution is held to its burden to prove its case and so on and so forth. And Gideon is written in this very characteristic language of the Warren court, which is to say it's very short and there's a lot of very um, eloquent, idealistic language about in this country, the right to counsel may not be fundamental in other countries, but it is in ours and that this is what it takes to provide a fair trial in the United States. But what there was often not in the court decisions of the Warren court was any detail or explanation of how this was supposed to be implemented, who was gonna pay for it, what this was actually gonna look like. And so what happens is in the States, you then get a wide variety of different responses from you know, some states that basically don't do much of anything to states that already had public defenders like California and don't have to do much of anything to states that really there's a lot of change where they now are trying to establish or expand public defender offices and funding for public defender offices where they didn't have it before. So the kind of standard history I get, I got in law school is 
the Supreme Court decides this great decision, and then it went to the states and the politicians kind of failed and didn't live up to the promise, but Gideon itself was a really great and noble decision. And, um, you know, we all hope that one day the legal profession or the, the state governments might finally fully implement the promise of Gideon. <laughs> so um, what I wanted to do with the book was dig a little deeper into what actually turns out to be a much longer history on this issue that starts about 50 years prior to the Gideon decision in 1913 in the progressive era when California first established public defender offices long before it was ever constitutionally required when there are proposals for this in other parts of the country that are rejected. And so I trace in the book that history from the progressive era basically through the 1960s and 70s um, and the aftermath of Gideon. And so it's kind of, um, I guess 20th century America is kind of a slight misnomer in the title because it really doesn't go much beyond the early 1970s for reasons I'd be happy to talk about if you're curious, but, but that's can kind you, of the can, <laughs> can I ask you a question? Was it in California that the term public defender was first used? I think so. So the origin of this actually is that there's a woman named Clara Foltz in the 1890s who was the first woman who was admitted to legal practice in the state of California. And so she had to, uh, she was one of a handful of women at the time who fought these legal battles to force the state bar to allow them to be licensed to practice law because historically only men were thought, um, you know, that it was too tawdry for women to be in court with all the terrible things that were getting discussed there. And so Clara Foltz is the first woman who becomes licensed as a lawyer in California. And then she also is credited as kind of the inventor of this idea of the public defender. And she goes around in the 1890s giving these speeches about how, well, if the government hires the prosecutor, which they were doing by this time, then there should also be a public defender on the other side uh, to kind of counterbalance. And so I, she, she is definitely kind of the first person who uses the term and publicizes the term public defender in the way that we think of it today. I cannot say for sure that someone somewhere didn't use that term prior to that, that I just didn't find in the archives. But um, but yeah, California really kind of is where the idea first and the term first gets widely used. And then actually Los Angeles County is the first jurisdiction that in 1913 establishes what they call the Los Angeles County Office of the Public Defender. Can I ask you, what about the uh, sort of inherent conflict of, uh, you know, the prosecutor being paid by the government and the, your, your lawyer being also paid by the government? I mean, how do you... Res yeah. Okay. I'm glad you asked that because that is actually, for a lot of lawyers, that was actually they thought that was a huge problem initially. And so in 1913, 1914, 
as I mentioned, Los Angeles County starts a public defender office and there are people writing these articles and um, proposals who are saying, oh, this is a great idea. Um, we should have a public defender. And interestingly, the argument at the time for the public defender is this will actually solve two problems because the poor defendant who doesn't have a lawyer will now have a lawyer. But conversely, there were some people who thought we also want to force rich defendants or organized crime defendants. We want to force them to have a public defender rather than their paid lawyer, because we want to even the playing field between the government and the defense. And that once you have public defenders on both sides of the case, or once you have public officials on both sides of the case, they will work together. They will see themselves as partners in a shared government enterprise of convicting the guilty and acquitting the innocent. But it was kind of, um, it was very different from what we now well, what even then, but certainly now, the typical understanding of the American court system is that it's very adversarial and the prosecutor and the defense attorney are not working together as partners, but rather they are engaged in combat. And so some of those early public defender proposals were seen as really quite wacky by a lot of more traditional attorneys. And they said kind of what you, I think were asking, which is, wait a minute, how can the government pay both sides of the case? Isn't the defense attorney just going to be rolling over? You know, isn't he going to see himself as kind of beholden to the government, not really standing up for his individual client, but kind of um, going along with what the prosecutor might say or what he thinks the government would want him to say or things like that. So this was seen as a real challenge to the ideal of the American lawyer as this independent advocate that is not beholden to the government and that is actually in criminal cases on the other side of the government. So that, that's partly why I argue in the book that the public defender um, does not take off, particularly on the East Coast during that early period, because a lot of lawyers in New York and a couple other cities, they just say, this is crazy, we can't have this. And so what they would say is, okay, maybe there is a problem where there are defendants who cannot afford a lawyer and there should be a private legal aid society that helps them or something like that, but it needs to be independent of the government. So there's early on a little bit of debate about that. Um, what ends up happening, which I think is kind of interesting, is that in practice, the public defenders do not actually end up seeing themselves as partners of the prosecution. So that idea kind of drops away a little bit. I mean, there are certainly people today that might still be suspicious of this or might be concerned that the public defender is um, too friendly with the prosecution or seeing its role as institutional more than adversarial. Um, but what I found is that pretty early on, the early public defenders in Los Angeles actually do develop this identity that, yes, it's true that the government pays our salary, but that's all. The government is not involved beyond that. And we have the exact same duty to represent our individual clients as if 
we were getting paid by the client, that our um, adversarial role should not be changed by the facts that the government happens to be paying for this. And so they, uh, you know, work with prosecutors in the sense that they're both in and out of court all the time. They know each other pretty well, and they might discuss a plea bargain or how to resolve a particular case, but they nevertheless also are, um, in the early years, seeing themselves as, okay, if we go to trial, I'm going to be my client's advocate. I'm not really working for the government at that point. And so um, I guess to kind of answer your question, I don't know that the tension really has ever been fully resolved, but it is a tension that people initially thought was a really big problem. And I think over time, uh, the public defender's professional identity has evolved to an identity that can somehow manage this tension between depending on government funding, but nevertheless, their role as an attorney is to represent individual clients. What is the relationship between the public defender programs and the Legal Aid Society, which I just looked up to see when it was founded? It was founded in 1876 in New York. So yeah. How does that work? Okay, so it actually depends quite a bit on location. So another thing I found researching this book, which isn't that surprising, but as with everything in the United States, um, when you have this very complicated federalist structure of government, um, every state and locality does things a little bit differently and has its own history. And so in New York, as you mentioned, the Legal Aid Society there was established in the 1870s. So it was already around, but they originally only took civil cases and were mainly doing a lot of um, wage and hour disputes on behalf of uh, working class um, plaintiffs who had complaints about wage theft or things like that. What happens in New York is that, as I mentioned, there's a proposal for the public defender in New York in 1914-ish and the lawyers in New York say, we do not want a public defender. We don't want this to be part of the government. But what we're going to do is the Legal Aid Society started a branch called the Criminal Courts Branch of the Legal Aid Society. And so they start taking on criminal cases. And they actually still are around today, although it's now there are other organizations in New York as well. And it's kind of become more complex institutionally. But um but still, the Legal Aid Society in New York does provide representation in criminal cases as well. Um, what changes over time is that they start getting government funding. So even though they're still private and they're still a kind of separate nonprofit organization, they also increasingly are going to get some public funding to help support the part of their work that is fulfilling the public obligation to provide counsel in criminal cases. Um, but New York is not typical in that regard, because in a lot of areas, what is called the Legal Aid Society only takes civil cases. And then there's a separate government entity, whether it's state or local, that's the public defender's office that handles criminal cases. And there are all kinds of 
permutations in between those two possibilities, but it really depends on um, partly on state and local policy and partly on the history of what happened to be there before 1963 and kind of um, what decisions were made about how to work or not work with organizations that already existed. Sarah, I'm just curious about the, what I will call the competency of these public defenders. I have a good friend uh, who is one and who's extremely competent, but if you look at the movies, the mythology, uh, these public defenders come in, they have five minutes to talk to their client. They want to plead down to a lesser offense and get it off their docket is what it amounts to. What's your opinion in terms of uh, the level of expertise of these public defenders? I guess I am going to try to answer that question kind of from a historical perspective, which is I was very curious about the origins of that perception that you describe, which is that public defenders are at best trying to do their best, but they're so underfunded and they're so overworked and their caseloads are so enormous that they just cannot spend enough time on each case, um, cannot spend the amount of time that it would require to really do justice to each client's case. So that's kind of, that's kind of one version. And then the, the other version of the story, um, which is actually a, a complaint that, for example, in the late 1960s, um, some of the Black Panthers write about this as um, the kind of more cynical version of what I just said, which is um, this is all by design, that these people aren't really advocates on our behalf. They're um, All they want to do is get rid of us, negotiate a plea, send us to prison, and what kind of defense is that? So um, there's kind of two sides of that. Well, I guess the third version of the story would just be because these jobs historically didn't pay as well as private law firm jobs, for example, that you might just be getting um, less skilled or less talented attorneys into these jobs. So all of those criticisms um, sort of are around in various versions and certainly in pop culture representations of public defenders. I mean, to the extent that there are pop culture representations, because it's not like, like the show Law and Order does not really feature public defenders as the main characters, right? They kind of might come in as the defense attorney, which is kind of interesting. But um, what I found is that that was not always the perception that prior to Gideon, there were basically places where there was no public defender at all, or if there was a public defender, they had a pretty high reputation in the legal profession in their area. And they were seen as these kind of experts in criminal law, which was seen as um, kind of a sleazy thing to be a specialist in, but they were the most upstanding versions of that was kind of the perception. Um, after Gideon, what happens is that once you say, okay, there has to be a public defender in every single case, or so, there has to be some criminal defense attorney in every single case, um, that meant that a lot of the existing defender organizations, which had maybe been providing representation in some selected subset of cases, now they're being told, 
you have to represent every criminal defendant in the jurisdiction. And so a lot of their um, caseloads really expand exponentially. And even though they're also hiring more lawyers, it never really catches up with the caseloads. And so I think some of what, some of the origin of that sense that there's this crisis where the public defenders are underfunded, overworked, their caseloads are crushing them, um, really has its origins ironically in what is supposed to be this very triumphant moment where the Supreme Court has announced this great right to counsel and now the states are trying to implement the right to counsel. Um, and yet very quickly, the implementation becomes um, kind of its own separate set of problems or kind of its own separate crisis. And so I think partly what happens is um, the public defender offices are never really able to catch up they're never really, they don't really have time to kind of slowly build and hire all the lawyers they would need and then sort of, um, and then sort of catch up to the demand once uh, it's determined that this is a constitutional right. Now, the other thing obviously that happens is a lot of states also don't help them because a lot of state politicians are already reluctant to provide funding for this kind of thing. And so um, there's that problem. And then the other problem that happens is um, this also comes kind of, this is all happening, you know, right before the 70s and the 80s. So by the 70s and the 80s, the government has, um, both the federal government and the state governments have transitioned to kind of tough on crime, law and order type, war on drugs type policy making. And so the number of criminal cases goes up for that reason as well, uh, which is that there's simply more criminal cases and more criminal defendants. And the funding goes up and up for police and for prosecution. It never goes up to the same degree on the defense side. So they're kind of always, I, I would um, argue that it's not really that, you know, public defenders are like any other job where there's some that are more excited about their job than others. And, so, you know, some that are more um, talented or skilled than others. But on the whole, I think the real problem is that the scale of what they are being asked to do is always much greater than the resources provided for them to really be able to do that. So how does a person become a public defender? Is this a career path that most of them choose? What's the, what's the actual pathway to becoming a public defender? Yeah, well, it's funny because I teach law students now, and a lot of them actually come to law school now because they want to be a public defender because they see it as a way to get involved in issues around policing and racial justice and mass incarceration. But historically, that was not really true. And um, a lot of people um, saw being a public defender as a good thing to do for like two or three years. So historically, um, there was this sense, like for example, Harvard Law School is a good example of a law school where if you went to Harvard Law School in the 1950s, the assumption was you're gonna be a corporate lawyer or maybe you're gonna go work for the federal government or you're gonna do something really important. And so no one was 
expecting that those students would become public defenders, maybe they might do it for a couple of years out after law school just to get experience. Um, and it was kind of seen as this sort of high turnover job, at least in some parts of the country. And it was also seen as kind of like an idiosyncratic thing to want to do. So the way you become a public defender, I guess, is you go to law school, like a normal law school curriculum, and then it would be kind of, um, it would have to be some sort of set of personal idiosyncrasies that would then lead you to want to become a public defender. Um, After the 1960s, that changes to some extent, because increasingly, there are law school graduates who see being a public defender and representing indigent clients as a way of working on issues of poverty, of racial justice, of um, an opportunity to kind of challenge the excesses of law enforcement. Obviously, that's not true for everyone, but you do start to get people who see it as more of a um, kind of a political or, um, I don't know, kind of a way of being an activist. But I think a lot of people then who see it that way get burnt out pretty quickly once they realize that, um, you know, you're not, what you're really doing is, again, as I was mentioning with the caseloads, it's like, well, really, you're going to be given a thousand cases that you now have to go resolve in a very short amount of time. So it can start to be, um, you know, if you start out very idealistic, I think a lot of those people that I found in the archives, at least, they tended to get sort of cynical about it pretty quickly or burnt out pretty quickly. But um, I think it's, you know, it's an interesting sort of subset of the legal profession because the the reasons for wanting to do it seem to, to go in cycles and change from time to time. And like I mentioned, the current generation of law students uh, do not want to be prosecutors. And a lot of them see being a public defender as a way of um, making a difference on issues of racial justice and and disparities of punishment and things like that. There were, I mean, it's funny because another thing I found in this much earlier debate a hundred years ago in the progressive era was there were people who said, why do you have to go to three years of law school where you study contracts and corporate law and all of these things if you want to be a prosecutor or a public defender or work in the criminal courts we should have a specialized educational program that just trains you in sociology and criminology and criminal law and things like that but the law school world has been pretty resistant to specialized training in that way. So we still um, then and now have remained in this model where we provide a very generalist legal education to the law students, and then they can go decide to do what they want afterwards. Tara, uh, what are the salaries like? I presume this is not a way to get rich if you're you're, (laughs) a a young lawyer. It is uh, certainly not a way to get rich. But beyond that, it really, again, depends. There are some places where the salaries are really quite minimal, and it's not only not a way to get rich, but it's not even a very good way to, you know, pay your bills. But there are also a lot of places where 
you know, it's not a way to get rich, but it's a way to make money and get a salary. And um, I believe at least this was true 10 years ago, and I would have to check whether it's still true. But um, at one, you know, for example, San Francisco, my understanding was that the public defenders and the district attorney's office and the city attorney's office were unionized and on the same pay scale. So they had negotiated that um, whatever the salary scale is for any any lawyer that works for the city government, that's what the public defenders get to. But that's not true everywhere, certainly. Now it's actually quite, it's ironically quite competitive because even though, you know, the amount of people that want to do it is, 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 is often greater than the number of positions that there are, even though most law students aren't applying for these positions. It's kind of a small group of them that are. I can't totally speak to, um, you know, what the hiring process is like, but my sense is that today what they really look for is kind of commitment to representing criminal defendants. And, um, you know, they, they want to see that you've really been focusing on these issues during law school with your classes and your internships and things like that. Hey, Alden. Um, yeah, two things. One, um, <clears throat> for what it's worth, my nephew is a public defender at Santa Cruz County. Uh, he's in his mid-50s and planning to make a career of it. So uh, he started a little late. He actually worked for us for five years before he went to law school. But, um, but my question really is, this must, uh, this must have gotten political. Uh, it's one thing to defend uh, drunk and disorderly and traffic fines and so on. And, uh, but, but there must be situations where people have defended uh, folks who were disliked by the population in general, whether it's civil rights or whatever. And you must have researched situations where uh, people grew up and said, hey, we, we want to get rid of public defenders. Uh, we want to get rid of that particular public defender because he defended all these terrible people. But can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I actually, I actually found less of that than I would have thought historically. There, um, for example, the, the Los Angeles public defender in the 19... 30s and 40s represented, um, they took murder cases, which not all public defenders take murder cases necessarily. So sometimes they assign those cases to pro bono private counsel for various reasons. But um, the Los Angeles public defender in the 1940s represented some defendants in these very like sort of like you know the oj simpson trials of their day although not with the racial dynamics but just in the sense of being closely followed high profile murder trials and i was kind of surprised that there wasn't seemingly the kind of public outcry that you might expect and i think it was because the public defender really held itself out as um a kind of civic professional in a way that maybe staved off some of that concern in contrast to private criminal defense attorneys who always have been very controversial and often have been regarded as these kind of sketchy figures by other lawyers in the profession. Um, particularly on the 
funding side of things, it's often difficult to convince state legislators that, oh, you really need to appropriate more funding for these defendants who are represent for these lawyers who are representing criminal defendants. And it's also true that every once in a while, um, the current president, uh, the Biden administration has actually been nominating many more former public defenders to judicial positions to the federal bench than has historically been true. But I think partly why that is has historically not been a great path to a judicial nomination is that there will be members of Congress who go back through your past cases and will want to grandstand and say, well, how could you have defended that murderer or something like that? Um, but I actually found less of that, at least on the surface, in the historical record than I would have thought. And what I also thought was interesting is that um, the Gideon versus Wainwright decision was not as controversial as the other Warren Court decisions. And the other, obviously, the Warren Court decisions that have to do with policing, like the Miranda decision, um, then become very politically controversial. And the Reagan administration was trying to get a lot of those decisions overturned in the positions it was taking at the Supreme Court in the 1980s. And in contrast, um, Ed Meese, who, when he was the attorney general um, in the Reagan administration, actually spoke very positively about Gideon and the right to counsel, and that he agreed that every defendant should have a public defender. So interestingly, the politics are not as um, sort of predictable as one might think. And I guess the cynical explanation for that might be that if you think that public defenders actually make the criminal courts work more smoothly, then there's kind of a conservative case for the public defender, which is um, this makes the process more orderly and more predictable and things like that. But for whatever reason, um, I didn't find as much kind of open political <clears throat> grandstanding on this issue as I might have thought. I think what how it plays out is more that behind the scenes, it's just not a priority so much for the legislature. Do you have a quantitative uh, study on how many there are and how many, how about the turnover is and whether there's a change in the rate of turnover over a certain span of time? Well, I, I didn't do like a big comprehensive social science type study because that's just not my, mm -hmm. um, that's not where my training lies or my expertise lies. But to the extent that I could get a kind of qualitative impression of this, um, the... I guess the short answer is that it's another thing where the history really was dependent on different institutional specifics of where you happen to be. In California, the public defender's offices actually very early on had very low turnover and people would treat that as their long-term career and stay in those offices for a long time. Uh, in the kind of legal aid society type private model that existed, there seems to have been a lot more turnover, especially among younger attorneys where people would come in for a year or two and then kind of cycle back out 
and a new person would come in for a year or two. Um, my sense is that it's shifted to much more of, um, the balance has shifted towards more of a longer term career model over time, but I don't have exact statistics on that. Marcy. Um, what has been the evolution of defending um, people who are mentally ill and perceived as threats to other people? Um, well, I think one significant shortcoming of Gideon and the constitutional right to counsel is that it only attaches in criminal cases. And so if someone is charged with a crime, then they certainly would have a right to counsel and a right to a public defender in those situations. Um, now, whether those people are have the adequate training and sensitivity and competence to deal with a variety of mental health issues, I think would be a separate question that, um, that we could discuss or uh, not even necessarily me, but that certainly would be worth looking into further. Um, but unfortunately, if someone is dealing with the types of civil legal issues that might arise, such as civil, um, you know, like restraining orders that are civil or civil confinement or, um, losing housing, public benefits, trying to access disability benefits and things like that. In a lot of those situations, there's no constitutional right to counsel under the federal constitution. There often might be provisions at the state level or at the political policymaking level, you know, the states or local governments might make some arrangements to try to provide counsel to people in those situations, but it's a little beyond the sphere of what I cover in the book because it would not be covered necessarily by the, um, the sort of public defender thing. I mean, one trend that I've noticed though with public defenders currently is an effort to question some of those boundaries that we draw between, well, this person has a criminal problem and this person has a civil problem. And so there are now public defenders offices that try to provide what they call holistic defense, which means, okay, you might be a criminal defendant, but we're also going to try to help you with your other issues that you might have going on in your life with respect to housing or medical services or social services. But that is very much you kind of at the mercy of what happens to be going on with local initiatives in your area. It's certainly not constitutionally mandated. Can you say something about the racial aspects of actual public defenders across the U.S.? Um, I, I know there's been a, a lot of talk about uh, district attorneys uh, who are uh, predominantly white, uh, much more so than their uh, representation in the population broadly is, and that may influence the way, for example, policemen who uh, create crime are, are not prosecuted to the full extent that they might otherwise be. And so 
uh, are there the same kind of issues for public defenders? Uh, I would say yes, there, there are the same issues to some extent, especially because the legal profession generally has had has a long history of being racially exclusive. On the one hand, criminal defendants are actually disproportionately people of color because of a variety of reasons, um, including disproportionate enforcement and uh, demographics of cities at the time and things like that. And then on the other hand, the lawyers often were all white at the time, still in the 1960s. And um, efforts to recruit black attorneys in particular to public defenders offices were discussed, but often weren't really that successful in practice. Um, so I, I think that that legacy is still um, an issue that public defenders today still grapple with and, and are, I think, grappling with more openly as, as I think many institutions are in the, in the current moment. Um, but perhaps this could be um, a good anecdote to leave you with, which is an interesting history a historical case study that I cover in the book is a group uh, actually in Boston in the late 1960s called the Roxbury Defenders Committee. And that was actually established by two African-American lawyers who um, specifically wanted to come up with a new form of the public defender that would be more a part of the community that it was serving. And so the idea was, we're gonna to go to Roxbury, which is where a lot of the defendants um, were at the time and um, perhaps still today. But at the time they said, we're gonna have our offices right in the neighborhood. We're gonna have a 24 hour hotline. We're gonna to try to really get to know the people in the community. And so they're not gonna just see us as this government lawyer that shows up at the last minute when they get arrested, but that they could see us as a resource in their community that they could turn to when they get into trouble, but also maybe before they get into trouble that we could kind of help connect people with services and things like that. And so I think there are um, models that we could look to for coming up with different ways of structuring this kind of uh, an office um, that would maybe, um, I don't know, that, that people certainly were thinking about that question even 50 years ago. And I think today, if people want to think about that question again, there's, there's certainly um, examples in the historical record that might be illuminating for people to go back to and, and maybe revive some of that. But, but I guess the short answer is, um, I think it is, uh, I think it is still an issue and it, and it certainly hasn't um, gone away as an issue. That was Sarah Mayu. Her latest book is titled Free Justice, A History of the Public Defender in 20th Century America. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.